Thank you so much for being here today, man. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, we are four episodes in. I am loving uh, this podcast thing. You know, I wanted to do this uh, so bad for so long. And uh, man, I'm really glad that I, I don't even know. Well, first, let me say to those of you that, uh, that are listening, man, I appreciate it so much. And uh, those of you that have followed us on Facebook and Instagram and uh, Twitter and all of that, thank you. I really, uh, really appreciate the interaction and all those kinds of things. It is, uh, uh, I'm blessed to be doing it. And um, while we're on that, let me um, continue to encourage you. I said this the first three uh, podcasts. This is only episode number four, so we're only four in, and uh, still just a, a really a brand new podcast. So uh, there's such an ocean of podcasts out there that it is really hard to get a footing, and it is uh, very difficult to uh, kind of succeed in this uh, industry. So I need your help. If you would, on your social media stuff, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, if you would let people know about us, uh, make a post about it, uh, share the episodes on your social media platforms, that is a huge assistance and help, and I would really, really appreciate it. Also, if this is your first time uh, listening, welcome, and uh, find us on Facebook, find us on Instagram, find us on Twitter and all that stuff, and follow us, let us know that you're out there, uh, and uh, we look forward to that. Uh, Yeah, so this has been a blast, and uh, we've got a couple of guests coming up in the next couple of weeks that I'm looking forward to, so uh, continue uh, to tune in. Let me know your thoughts. I uh, appreciate it. Okay, so what I want to talk to you about today is um, people, suffering, doctrine, dogma, and compassion. And I want to begin the episode today with a quote from a guy named Soren Kierkegaard. Now, uh, if you listen much to me, you know I'm a huge fan of Kierkegaard. He was this highly respected uh, Danish philosopher, theologian, uh, poet. Um, he authored several religious type of books, and uh, Kierkegaard is great. And so I'd like to begin this with a quote from Kierkegaard, and um, this is what he has to say. To become a Christian um, is the ultimate. To want to understand Christianity as if it were some doctrine is open to suspicion. So, to so many people, sound doctrine is the pinnacle of their Christian faith. It is the most important uh, and critical element to whom they perceive themselves to be in Christ. Even to the point that doctrine trumps compassion, experience, suffering, uh, humanity, grace, so much so 
that at various times in human history, when doctrine is in some way disturbed or when sound doctrine is some way threatened, horrible violence, horrible torture, and wars have occurred. The purity of the faith, the pursuit to protect sound doctrine, has inspired separation from friends, uh, families, countries. Uh, It's inspired murder, torture, um, in some really horrific ways. Uh, So there's this guy uh, that I'd like to quote. His name is John Calvin, who um, he is uh, or was a, um, a respected theologian, undoubtedly a very intelligent man. I have people who I, um, I consider to be very close friends that love Calvin. And those friends are really good people. So uh, they're not going to appreciate the quote, I don't think. But I really want to share it because it encapsulates um, what I'm trying to share. Uh, Calvin is quoted as saying uh, this concerning um, people who believe or spread Uh, what he considered to be false doctrine. And here's what Calvin has to say. We vindicate the honor of God by silencing those who sully his holy name. Uh, Calvin also says, those who would spare heretic, uh, those who would spare heretics, blasphemers, are themselves blasphemers. When his, meaning God's glory, Uh, When his glory is at stake, we should expunge from our memory our mutual humanity. And that's the one I really want you to to, uh, pay attention to for the moment. When his, meaning God's, when his glory is at stake, we should expunge from our memory our mutual humanity. In other words, what Calvin is saying is we should not see these offenders, uh, these people of false doctrine, as human beings. Uh, At least that's the way I interpret that. And what a horrible idea. You know, other atrocities in the name of doctrine came in the form of uh, the Inquisitors during the Inquisition, which were horrible times. And if you've seen the means, uh, some of the means by which they used to purge false doctrine from people, uh, holy hell, man, (laughs) it is absolutely horrific. Um, A couple of those were, one of them was called the Strapado which is just this horrible form of torture where a victim's arms are tied behind their back, a rope is then attached to the arms, right? And they lift this uh, individual in the air with their arms, you know, by their arms tied behind their back. Incredibly horrible torture. Um, Another was called the rack, and it was this huge oblong rectangular frame with rollers on each end, and attached to these rollers were these bars, right? So your hands were tied to one end of this uh, uh, of these uh, bar, and then at the other end were your feet, and they would, as the interrogation uh, progresses, these rollers ratchet your arms and limbs further apart from one another, where your your arms, you know, and your limbs would come out of socket, your um, your ligaments would be torn, right? Even to the point that um, 
geez, you're, 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 the victim's limbs would be ripped right off of their body. What a horrible thing. All this in the name, of course, of God, in the name of sound doctrine. Um, there was another thing called the Judas chair, and it was this pyramid-shaped seat, and at the top of the pyramid, obviously, is this very sharp point, right? And so the victim would be tied up with ropes and lowered onto this pyramid, and the point would be uh, inserted into the anus, uh, or for a woman, sometimes into the vagina, and as the questioning advanced, the inquisitor slowly lowered the defendant further and further onto the point, um, sometimes actually killing the individual. Uh, how horrible is that? Um, and then, of course, you have the Salem witch trials where people are burned at the stake. They're tortured. They're, they're hanged. Uh, friends, this is what happens when you remove human compassion, <clears throat> when you remove mercy and love from God. Or as Calvin said, when you expunge from memory our mutual humanity. When people become inhuman, when they're merely expressions of good or bad doctrine, um, when they are simply a label, such as heretic. Um, when we separate or delineate who's in and who's out, when one group reveres themselves as we are the righteous and those outside of our circle, they're the sinners, we open the doorway to these horrible atrocities. I mean, just look at the wars that have happened in the name of God, the wars that are still happening today in the name of various gods. All this based um, substantially on doctrines. Compassion, uh, it's easy to eradicate, especially in the name of God, when you view humans as labels like heretics or reprobates or abominations or sinners. And this was happening in the time of Christ as well, of course. And Jesus does a couple of things to break these stigmas, and he seems fixated on taking down dogmas and removing labels. And an interesting example of this is in Luke 10. There's this parable uh, of the Good Samaritan. And Jesus creates this interesting circumstance. If you don't know the story, you should read it. And he tells the story about a man who's robbed stripped and uh, beaten to death, well, nearly beaten to death, right? Within a few inches of life. Um, he then says a Jewish priest walks by and sees the man, and instead of helping, he crosses to the other side of the street so he doesn't have to deal with it. Then a Levite comes by, and a Levite was a descendant of a very powerful clan, highly respected. And so this Levite walks by, Jesus says, and sees him, and he does the same thing. He ignores the dying, uh, beaten man. Then Jesus says, But a Samaritan came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He bandages his wounds, pouring oil and wine. He put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Then Jesus asks an expert of the Jewish law, Who do you think? 
was a neighbor to the wounded man. Now, the answer is obvious, but there's actually a lot more going on here than just that point, because in the social setting of that day, uh, the Jewish people hated the Samaritans. And for Jesus to make the Samaritan the hero of the story was bold, and it humanized um, an individual who was despised, who in that day would have been little more than a label. And so this is a story about dogma, because uh, more than likely, the priest and the Levite were probably on their way to the temple, and helping the wounded man would have made them unclean. Um, And so Jesus is kind of mocking that idea. The story is about racism, because the culture of that day regarded Samaritans as filth. They were were nearly uh, considered not human. And the story is about labels and how they dehumanize people and make them objects instead of God's creation or human beings. And so it is a powerful lesson uh, with all kinds of lessons within it. It becomes uh, compelling because Jesus takes this cultural, doctrinal, and social idea and he turns them upside down in one conversation. He does... uh, he does a lot with this, right? And, and, and Jesus is often doing these kinds of things. Uh, with a woman caught in adultery, he breaks a doctrinal code by standing up for her and, and seeing her as human instead of just a breaker of God's law. Uh, she isn't a slice of doctrine, right? She is flesh. She's blood. She's experiences. Uh, she's hurt. She is a product of her upbringing, her pain, her life. Uh, and Jesus does this frequently. Um, Paul Tillich, who is a, uh, was a great theologian, uh, he said, History has shown that the most terrible crimes against love have been committed in the name of fanatically defended doctrines. When we rob the doctrines of God of humanness, of human expression, of human experience, of human suffering, human tragedy, and the experience of human life, the doctrine becomes dead. Uh, it becomes poison. It becomes, uh, can become murderous. And Jesus never expunged our humanity. He never is repulsed by it. It's not divisive to him. And this, friends, um, is where I really struggle with attributing suffering, separation, uh, to the will of God. Um, That is to say, uh, see, some would have us believe by their devotion to their doctrine that God is the author of sex slavery, of rape, of molestation, of hurricanes, of people being crushed in earthquakes, of infants drowning, of cancer, of all these things. Uh, uh, he's the author in, uh, in third world countries, bodies are mutilated, or young women, very young children really, are married off, uh, where people are tortured of all ages. And for the sake and purity of doctrine, they accept that as good because it is God, right? He's the author of those things. It's his will that those things should happen. And friends, obviously those things are not good. 
Not in any way, not in any shape, not in any form. They are evil. Um, in the book of James, which is a, a, a book in the New Testament, um, the Bible says, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Uh, there's a guy named Pete Enns and he wrote a book called The Sin of Certainty. Uh, it's really an excellent book and, and I'd like to read a small portion uh, of it for you. The deeper problem is it reduces the life of faith to sentry duty. A 24-7 task of pacing the ramparts and scanning the horizon to fend off incorrect thinking in ourselves and others, too engrossed to come inside the halls to enjoy the banquet. A faith like that is stressful and tedious to maintain. Moving toward different ways of thinking, even just trying it on for a while to see how it fits, is perceived as a compromise of the faith, or is giving up on faith altogether, but nothing could be further from the truth. Aligning faith in God and certainty about what we believe and needing to be right in order to maintain a healthy faith, these do not make for a healthy faith in God. In a nutshell, that is the problem, and that is what I mean by the sin of certainty. Um, I really love that quote. <laughs> it's interesting to me that we're so divided um, over doctrines. Uh, we're so divided over who's a heretic and who's not. We're so divided when someone like myself and many of you out there begin to question some of the aspects of our faith, um, we're suddenly on the outs, right? We're suddenly not allowed to be a part of the group, or we're labeled as a heretic, or we're labeled as a blasphemer, or we're told we're going to hell, and all these kinds of things, because we have questions. Um, when in reality, all of us, every one of us, those of you who think you're sound, and those of you who aren't so sure, we're all people with problems and with circumstances and pain and dreams and losses and struggles and weaknesses. And we're not doctrines. Um, we're not merely a system of beliefs. Uh, we're never free from our experiences. Uh, we're never free from our, our life. Uh, and quite honestly, I don't think that our doctrines should be free from our experiences and, and from our pains, from our ups and downs. They absolutely should be a portion, not the sum total of, but they absolutely should be a portion of um, our belief about God. I know some would say that our experiences should never determine our doctrine, but how? I mean, how is that possible? You know what I mean? Um, we're not made that way. We're full of emotions and thoughts. We are reflective as a, as a species. We're philosophical. We're thinkers. That's what gives us our, our elevated uh, status. Wouldn't it be powerful for our own humanity to re-enter our faith? For compassion to be bigger than the labels, to be bigger than the lines, to be bigger than the doctrines. You know, um, in Jewish practice, there is a uh, practice known as Midrash. And Midrash is this interpretive act um, where it seeks to find answers to practical and theological 
uh, religious questions by searching scripture and honestly kind of seeking out all the possible meanings. What is the text trying to say in my life today? And that's known as Midrash, and, and it attempts to clarify or even make different interpretations and ex, uh, expositions, maybe. Um, one definition was even to take theological creativity to extend beyond the conditions assumed in the Bible and make new ideas and new uh, connections between current practice and the biblical text. Now, it's an interesting idea. It's an interesting practice where basically you seek to interpret the text and what it's truly saying in light of you know, history and social circumstances, practices of the day, uh, relationships of that time period, uh, the rest of the story, right? I've talked to you before about the meta narrative. How does this text fit in with the rest of the Bible? Um, and how do I interpret it in line with the rest of Scripture? How do I in- interpret what is the midrash of this text in light of who Jesus is? What is the midrash of this text in light of what Jesus did and what he said and and who he was? What is the midrash of this in light of, and I'm using the word incorrectly, but I'm, I'm trying to make a point here, in light of how he treated the Samaritan or how he treated the leper and you know, all these social circumstances. Um, There's a great book by Rob Bell called What's in the Bible. If you haven't read that, I encourage you to to grab that book and read it. Uh, It's so interesting to see the cultural narrative behind the text. You know, you and I, we read the Bible from uh, mostly a westernized viewpoint, and I hate when people criticize that, uh, make fun of it, because it's all the context that we have, right? Oh, it's where we were raised, all those kinds of things. But there's another story many times unfolding behind the words of Jesus, behind the words of Paul. And the more you begin to understand what's behind those words, the narrative that's going on, the storyline that's going on behind those words, it begins to give new light, begins to give new meaning. What's interesting to me is that... Um, the practices continue to this day, and it's called modern midrash. And uh, I heard, um, uh, interestingly enough, on another podcast, an author talking about, um, as part of the research for their book, they began to meet with a, a Jewish family who had rabbis over, and they would argue long into, ni- into the night about the different meanings of different texts and, and what they thought it meant and what they thought it believed. Um, and how the experience wasn't divisive, but instead it brought unity. Because apparently, and I'm not Jewish, but apparently in that culture, um, doctrines and, and biblical texts aren't divisive uh, as they are sometimes within the Christian experience. But instead they're a point of unity where individualized thoughts and ideas Uh, are respected and listened to and discussed. You know, friends, wouldn't it be great if we could, if we could kind of get to that place? 
Where an individual could say, this is what I'm dealing with and this is what I'm struggling with, or these are the experiences that I've had in my life. These are the ways that I've been hurt. Um, These are, you know, sitting by your father's bedside as cancer is eating him alive. Um, and knowing his life story and knowing the things that he's been through and knowing the, the, the religious tenor that unfolded in his life makes it difficult to believe um, in eternal torment. You know, I heard a comedian uh, uh, today talking about um, the thing that caused him to no longer believe in God was hell itself. He said, I feel like that God, you know, you made me, you created me. You're the one that put me together with all my weaknesses, with all my, my failures, with all my, uh, uh, you know, humanness. And uh, at the end of the day, when I don't turn out that well, you're going to throw me in hell. And he said, it, it, it seems like it ought to be your responsibility to fix me, you know. Um, Wouldn't it be great if we weren't offended by those things? Wouldn't it be great if those things didn't upset us, but instead we tried to understand where an individual was coming from, and we tried to make a place of unity? And I have to say, I have a lot of friends that do that. I have a lot of friends that listen uh, to my thoughts and, and, and exchange ideas, and I appreciate those people, and I love those people, and I care about them, and I believe that they care about me. But then there are others who can't tolerate any type of conversation that brings into question the things that they believe. I have those individuals that are continually in the thought process of separation. I'm in and these people are out. I'm right and they're wrong. I'm going to make it and they're not. And this is their this is their Christian experience. This is the way that they deal with God and and doctrines. When doctrines become more important than people, there's something wrong with your doctrine. When your doctrine makes you a jerk, there's something wrong with your doctrine. When your doctrine makes you label people as something less than human, there's something wrong with your doctrine. When doctrine causes you to hurt people, to expel people, to expunge from our memory, our mutual humanity, there's something wrong horribly wrong with your doctrine. And this is a place where some versions of God need to go away. Some of you need to destroy the God that you've believed in all these years and begin a brand new experience with him. Some gods inspire atheism. They absolutely do. Some gods inspire that it's better to believe in no God than the God that you believe in. And I, and I believe that today. There's some very damaging ideas about God out there. Um, it's interesting, and I, I saw this somewhere, but a university did a, did a study, and they found that um, our ideas of God have a profound psychological effect on our minds. They literally shape the way we view the world and see ourselves and see our friends and see our family. So what you think about God matters. Your doctrines, they do matter. Some of you have doctrines of death, and I had those in my life as well. And uh, I think they caused some problems. I'm definitely still in the mode of recovery 
I have a long way to go. I have a lot of things I need to fix about my life and about the way I love. And, and uh, you know, um, a lot of things. So anyway, man, um, that's it. That's what I had to say today. I hope that um, in, in some way it resonates with you. I hope that in some way it, you know, it, it, it does move you to begin to take away the labels, to begin to restore humanness to the people outside of your circle, to the people that you consider abominable or heretics or whatever. Um, and that it brings a semblance of love and humanness back to your, um, you know, back to your Christian experience, back to your God. Yeah, so, uh, so that's it, man. Thanks for joining me, guys. I appreciate it. God bless you. Done. Thank <laughs> you.